Um, I don't recall right offhand what countries they're in because they don't usually publicize the country because it's, you know, one of those things that you don't publicize, especially if we were broadcasting online like we are right now. So um, if you wanted to give towards missions and those missionaries as well as um, Birthright of the North Country, we support um, in either the bottom of your check in the memo line, you could indicate an amount to missions and an amount to the general offering. Uh, we certainly appreciate that. We can't do what we do for God here without your generous support. So we thank you for your faithful giving. Um, and then uh, Marsha's going to come in a minute, in a minute, and uh, and read a scripture. You know, I got to talk more than this, Marsha. Um, she's going to bring a scripture reading to us. But um, as you know or may not know, we're in the middle of a pastoral search. Uh, we don't have any active candidates that we're looking at. Uh, our district superintendent screens those. So I, I, even though we don't know about anything, there is work being done on our behalf, kind of behind the scenes. And what I hate to say one of the joys, but one of the nice thing about a, a, a period of change is we get to hear from a lot of different people who have a lot of different messages from God for us. Um, so far, each week, we have a different speaker through most of the summer. So that's a lot of different perspectives, and I always appreciate different perspectives because somebody just may say something that, you know, God is meant for you to hear, and that person brought it in a way that really resonates with you. So I always appreciate um, the opportunity we have to have a variety of people speaking. Um, today, we have someone named Brad Varner. Brad and his family are here with us, obviously, today, or he wouldn't be speaking, but he's right there. I've known Brad for a few years. He is the assistant regional director, did I-ish, kind of right northeast for Young Life. Young Life is a, a Christian organization with a focus that every kid deserves to hear the gospel, and they focus uh, activities and camps towards that goal reaching kids for Christ. And uh, we just sent 15 or 20 kids to camp a couple weeks ago, and there were at least three or four salvations from that. So um, Brad has been uh, a full-time ministry worker with them for 15 or 20 years, I think, right? Going back to uh, uh, Pennsylvania and, and then moved up here. So uh, he's going to bring a message today uh, in just a few minutes, and Marsha's going to come now and Get ready to read a scripture verse for us, and we'll go from there. Thank you, Marcia. Good morning, one and all. Great to see new faces and old faces. I'm reading from 2 Timothy 3, 12 to 17. In fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Well, evildoers and impostors will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of because you know these things from whom you learned it. And how from infancy you have known the holy scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is God breath, God breath, and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, 
so that the sermon, the servant of God may be truly equipped for every good work. I'm all set. Oh, wow. <laughs> I guess I am all set. <clears throat> uh, I wear these things like once or twice a year, and um, this one's really comfortable, actually. This is really nice. You guys have good stuff here. Um, so I think, okay, perfect. Um, I'm going to get my computer set. Uh, our church, I, we go to um, Adirondack Alliance Church in Saranac Lake, and we're in the middle of a pastoral search as well. So um, I get it. I know where, um, kind of where you guys are at and how that feels. And so uh, I appreciate being here. Thanks for inviting me. Um, all right. There we go. Okay. So I got this one and I got my, my notes on my computer. Um, so yeah, I, I'm Brad Varner. I work, actually, I shouldn't, I'm not supposed to wander, right? I was told, I, the first thing I was, I was asked, are you a wanderer? I'm like, what does that mean? Well, do you wander on stage? And so if you see me running around, it's just because I'm messing with them. Um, and so, no, I'm not really a wanderer, but I'm going to be very conscious of that. Um, so uh, I work with Young Life. Our mission is to introduce adolescents to Jesus Christ and help them grow in their faith. If you'd like to hear more about it afterwards, I'd be happy to share. I'm not going to talk about that um, today. Uh, I'm actually going to talk about the Bible. The, the verse that was read, all scripture is God breathed. I'm not actually going to talk a ton about that, but I'm going to ask the question, how do we know? We're going to talk about the Bible and the reliability and the truth of it today. Um, before I get into that, I want to share a story about my family and introduce my family. So this is my family. Three of them are downstairs. So that's me on the left, my son Andrew. This is an old picture, but Andrew right next to me is 10. Abby in the middle is 11. That is my wife, Brooke. I'm not going to tell you her age, but she looks like she's 25 for all of eternity. And then Ben is there on the right. Uh, I'm going to share a story about Ben. Uh, one of the things that we love to do in the summer, we don't do it as much as we should, but one of the things we love is going to a lake and just being in the lake. Um, the Young Life Camp, we have a Young Life Camp on Upper Saranac, and we went there last year, and they have this big blow-up inflatable obstacle course, and it's, it's awesome. Abby and Andrew last year went out to it. They're old enough, put life vests, vests on them. They go out and jump around and do the slide and all this stuff. Well, Ben, Ben's turning six. Last year when we were doing this, he was still four, right, almost five. And so he wanted to go out. He wants to do everything that they do, but he wanted to go out and I said, all right, I'll go out with you. And so we went out, and we just kind of sat there, like sat on this inflatable thing. And I want him to go down the slide. Like there's really one thing he could do, which is this big slide, okay? And I'm like, Ben, why don't we do this? He's like, I don't know, right? Um, and so we sat there for a long time. And then eventually, Ben's like, I want to do the slide. And I'm like, yes, right? So Ben, we, um, we got Ben from China three, three years ago. Um, and it's, it's just taken some time to trust, for him to trust us and um, to, to just say, oh, it's on the water. Sorry, it's a big inflatable thing on the water. Good point. That's why they're wearing life vests. Good. This is why, she, this is why my wife comes to everything that I do. Yeah. Okay, so it's on the water, okay? And so that makes it, that's, that's a big difference, right? Uh, so we go out on the water 
And uh, we're sitting out there, and Ben's like, I finally, I want to do the slide. I'm like, yes, this could be this great dad-son bonding thing where he, like, learns to trust and all this stuff. And so we climb up the back of this slide, and we're sitting on the top, and I'm like, all right, hey, buddy, I'm going to slide down, and I'll be in the water. Like, it's, I don't know, it's 8, 10 feet deep, so I'm kind of floating there, and I said, all right, I'll catch you. And he's like, okay. And so he's up at the top, right, and he's, like, holding on. There's nothing to hold on to, but, like, you can just tell he's trying to grab onto anything, right? So he starts to lift his hands up, and he falls right off the back. I'm just kidding. That, uh, <laughs> that would be bad, right? That would have been awful. No, he's, he's sitting there, and I'm like, all right, you can do it. He lifts his hands up, slides right down into my arms. And it, I mean, it was, it was awesome. Like, it was this opportunity to, for him to, to just trust, right? And he got to have fun. He got to be in the water. Um, so why do I tell you that story? You know, what does that have to do with anything with the Bible and the reliability of Scripture? Uh, well, there's two things that... Um, that I think we can pull from that. Number one, for you today, my hope is that what I'm going to share about the Bible, where it comes from, what, why it's trustworthy, is that you will be able to, to be like my son Ben and say, all right, I'm going to lift my hands up. I'm going to fully immerse. I want, I want you to know and understand and, and fully trust that the, the Word of God, the Bible that we have, is its firm foundation. And when we read it, when you listen to people talk about it, you say, this is, this is true. Because in our world, in our culture, gosh, it's just the Bible, the, the way that it's talked about is being diminished over time. And so for today, for you, I want you to, to, to listen and know and understand that we are standing on a firm foundation and that we can trust it. And there's joy and there's depth in that. And then the second reason I want to talk about what I am today uh, is, is so that you will be able to engage with the culture, with the next generation of people. Um, I work with a lot of high school and middle school kids, and um, the Bible, kid, they just, they want to, they have a lot of questions. They want to know, well, why is this book something that I should trust as opposed to this book? Why is this religion true and not this one? Why? And so hopefully today I'll be able to share some of those things that we can say, well, this, this is why. Because there's a lot of information out there that some of it's true, but it's twisted. Some of it's not true. And so today um, my hope is to share some of those things to equip you to engage with a different culture, especially uh, the younger generation. So before we even get to the Bible, there's a couple of building blocks, okay? There's a foundation that we have to build. Um, and what I'm talking about today is, is kind of the third, fourth step in what's called the, the classical apologetic for the Christian faith. So apologetics is just a branch of study of, of Scripture, of defending the faith. And so this is part of that. This is, this is an apologetical um, talk this morning. So a couple of the foundational things. Number one, does truth exist? That is like one of the most foundational things, especially in our culture with postmodernism and all, in our generation, people ask, well, does truth even exist? Because here's the thing, if truth doesn't exist, then the Bible can't be true. It's just a matter of opinion. 
So we got to talk about truth. Our culture says that truth is relative, that truth is subjective. What's true for me isn't true for you. And does that make sense? Like there's, there's no absolutes. And is that right? Does truth actually exist? So this is, an, this is a whole presentation that I give. There's a, a whole other half an hour. I'm not going to go into all that this morning. If you ever want to have me back to talk about truth, I, I love talking about it. Um, but here's, here's what it boils down to is this statement, objective truth doesn't exist, okay? There's a lot of ways to say it. What's true for you isn't true for me. There are lots, lots of different things that people will say, but it boils down to this, this statement, well, objective truth doesn't exist. If somebody says that to you, I'm going to prove to you today that truth actually exists, that it's a thing. What do you say to that statement? Well, is that true? Because here's the deal, if it's true that truth doesn't exist, then something is true, right? That statement. At the very least, <laughs> truth exists. Like, it is a thing. The question is, what is true, and then how do we know? Okay, what is true and how do we know? Because truth is a thing. Um, <clears throat> I would also say this, that it's hard to know something beyond any possible doubt. My, my point today with what we're going to talk about in the Bible isn't that, that the Bible is true beyond any possible doubt, but any reasonable doubt. So there's a difference. Um, for example, if you sit, you, everybody sat down in their chair this morning, and you subconsciously probably looked at the chair and said, okay, it's going to hold me, and you sat down. Well, was it possible that when you sat down that that chair was going to shatter into a million pieces and, and you would just fall right on the ground. Well, it was possible, but it wasn't reasonable, right? There's a lot of things that are possible, <laughs> but they're just not reasonable at all. In the court of law, uh, they convict, that one of the highest convictions is beyond any reasonable doubt, not beyond any possible doubt. There's always, there's always something that somebody can say, well, what about this, what about this, what about... It's reasonable for us to believe. My point today is it's reasonable for us to believe that the Bible is true. Uh, so that's, that's what I'm doing is building the case. A lot of apologetical things is building a very strong case. Um, and so that's, again, that's what we're going to talk about with the Bible. The second foundational thing uh, is this. Is it true that God exists? Because I, I think most of you know this. The Bible talks a lot about God. So if it's not true that God exists, well, then the Bible can't be true, and it's just somebody's made-up thing, right? So is it true that God exists? And again, this is a whole another foundational presentation. I love talking about this one. I'm going to, just for sake of time this morning, going to say we're going to believe that God exists. Okay, there's some arguments. There's um, what's called the moral argument. There's the teleological argument, design and fine-tuning argument. There's cosmological arguments. Thomas Aquinas has the Tominian arguments. There's five proofs for the existence of God. There's tons and tons of very good reason to believe that God exists. So I'm not going to get into um, any of those arguments, but I want to establish that God exists for one very important reason when we talk about the Bible, and that's miracles. Because if you've read the Bible, you know that there's miracles in it, right? In our natural, our, our world, our culture has a very naturalistic bent. 
that what you see in nature, that's all you get. In the Bible, because it has miracles, I can't believe it because I've never seen a miracle. So, if God exists, however, then miracles are possible because our universe, our world, is nature, right? It's created. So God is outside of nature. He's supernatural. A miracle is when God reaches in to the natural world, right, and does something. And so if God exists, then miracles are possible. And this, I will come back to this a little bit later on, um, but it's very important, again, to establish that, boy, if God exists and miracles are possible, then the Bible is at least possible, right? Now this, when you're talking to someone that doesn't believe the Bible or that, gosh, miracles are in it, what the heck? Well, if we can establish the truth exists, that God exists, well then you can at least say, well, isn't it possible that the stuff in the Bible has the possibility to be true? So that's the question that we're going to ask today is, is the Bible true? How would we know that? The place that we have to start, I'm not going to go through all of the 66 books of the Bible. We're going to focus in today on four of them, the Gospels. Um, <clears throat> because if the Gospels are true, so Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, if the Gospels are true, and particularly the resurrection, because that's really what they're, they're talking about. They're telling the story of Jesus that, that culminates with the resurrection, right? If the Gospels are true, then this, this is also true. That Jesus is God, okay? Because he said, I'm God, and then he rose from the dead. Well, did all that stuff that was written about that, is that true? If Jesus is God, then the Old Testament is true because Jesus affirms the Old Testament, and we'll talk about that. And then Jesus also promises the New Testament, okay? And we'll talk about, well, how does that, how does he affirm that? What does, what does that mean? Okay, so we'll talk about those things, but uh, we can't get to the Old Testament and the New Testament until we affirm that the Gospels, essentially the resurrection, the stuff, the documentation that says, hey, Jesus rose from the dead, is true. So today we're making the case that the Gospels are true because everything else is built upon that. So, how do we do that? We have two questions. Number one, are the Gospel texts accurate it's kind of like have you ever played the game of telephone like when you were a kid i don't maybe you guys play it here in church <laughs> but when you like whisper something to somebody else and you go around the circle and you whisper and whisper and whisper all the way all the way around you start with the word cat and you end up with like hippopotamus or something and you're like what in the world <laughs> like how did that happen um it's a fun game i like it but that that's the question did that happen with the biblical manuscripts the the gospel texts because that's a big argument, okay? The Bible was written over a period, the old, whole Bible was written over a period of 1,500 years by 40 different, more than 40 different authors in three different languages, and the Gospels were actually written just over 2,000 years ago. In 2,000 years, you know, if you can't say one thing and it lasts a string of 10 kids, what about 2,000 years? Did that happen with the Gospel texts? Uh, so that's the first thing we're going to talk through. And then the second question is, do they tell the truth? Um, I could write something down right now, okay? And we have all kinds of great, cool technology. You know, back in the day, they, didn't have, they, they copied stuff by hand. Right now, I could write something down and photocopy it or take a picture of it for the next hundred years, and you'd have a pretty accurate copy. But what I wrote down, it could actually have been a lie, 
or it could have just not been true. So even if we have an accurate copy, how do we know that they even told the truth? And so we'll talk about that too. So those are the two questions I want to get into today in terms of the Bible. So first one, are the gospel texts accurate? <clears throat> I think we have an abundance of evidence for this. I really only have enough time to talk about one. Um, and that is something called textual criticism. That textual criticism is a field of study for ancient documents. Okay, so any ancient document. Um, obviously, we're talking about Scripture today, the Bible. Um, but it asks the question, how do we know what the original text said? Um, maybe you know this, maybe you don't. We don't have the original copies of the Gospels. Okay? The original copies of the Bible. Uh-oh, there we go. Um, some people, that, that might freak some people out. Well, then how do you know... <laughs> That our Bible, the Bible that we read every single day, how do you know that that's accurate? How do you know that that's true? Well, we have lots and lots of copies, okay? So of the New Testament, okay, there's somewhere between 53 and 5,800 Greek New Testament manuscripts. We have somewhere between 19,000 and 2,000 19, with of other languages, like Coptic and other, you know, Latin, stuff like that. But the Greek is the earliest one. It's like the one that was, it was actually written in. We have 53 to 5,800 copies. Now, that might not be a full copy. That could be bits and pieces. The oldest fragment is a fragment of John. It's about this big, okay? Uh, and some of those are just, you know, maybe a full chapter of John. But we have lots of copies, and so how do you know what they said? Well, they take different copies, and here's an example of it. Copy number one might say something like, while we were still sinners, Christ blank IED for us. Maybe in one of the manuscripts it was a smudge, or maybe something was misspelled. Oh, we can't totally understand what this word is. Well, since we have, I don't know, 5,000 more, let's go check another one. And then you can say, oh, while we were still sinners, Christ D blank ED for us. Well, that first one, copy number one, could have said, well, Christ lied for us. Well, that's a big deal. That changes some stuff, right? But we have so many different copies that textual critics, the people that study this, very, very smart people, will take all those copies and they will put it together and say, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Okay? That's what textual criticism does. And I think this actually makes a stronger case that we know what the original said than if we just had one copy of the original Bible or the original New Testament, because if you only had one copy, well then, what, about, what if something changed in there? What if, right now, all these different copies are feeding into this idea of like, no, we can cross-reference and check. This is what we have. This is what we know that it said. Um, there's a couple of different things. I'll, I'll just say this before I move on about textual criticism. Um, you might hear critics say that, well, there's lots of errors in the Bible. When somebody says that, is that true or not? Well, um, there's something called a variant, okay? And so uh, right now we see copy one, two, three, and four. That's actually four people would say errors. Well, we would just say those are variants. It's, it's maybe something that varies from copy to copies, from manuscript to manuscript. And there are somewhere between four and 500,000 variants in the 53 to 5,800 copies of the New Testament that we have. So what the heck does that mean? So are there errors? Well, there's variants. 
Um, here's a couple of things with those variants. Um, the majority, the vast majority, are spelling or grammatical errors. They copied this stuff by hand. They didn't have a printing press. It was by hand. And so when we say grammatical or spelling errors, they, they literally just wrote something like the word the, T-E-H. We know what they were meaning to say. And you go to another copy and you're like, yeah, he just spelled it wrong because he was copying it by hand. So that's what I say when I say all these very, the, the vast majority are spelling or grammatical errors. Uh, it is estimated that somewhere between 0.3, 0 .3 to maybe 3% uh, of those variants would even make it into a footnote of our Bible. They're, they're barely worth even mentioning. And then when you read your Bible and you open it up and there's all these little things on the side or on the bottom, all those footnotes, they're not hiding anything. There's a lot of times when somebody will write in there, earliest manuscripts don't have this wording here. A later person might have just wrote it down because it was just common knowledge. Okay? Is that what the original said? We don't, we don't know, but it's, um, it's, it's what it means. It's what <laughs> they, they intended to say. So um, most of what we have in our Bible um, is, is very, very, very close to the original. I would also say this, um, none of the variants that we have in the copies uh, change any of the essential Christian doctrine. None of them. Um, we can get into inerrancy. I, I believe that the scriptures were given, uh, they're inerrant as originally given, but again, because we don't have the originals, we have to Put them together and see. But what I want us to, to know is that the text is accurate. We know what they wanted to communicate. <laughs> um, so it's reasonable for us to believe that our Bible is accurate as, a, as originally given. We know what the gospel writers were saying. Um, you can look this up, but there are a lot of scholars, biblical scholars, uh, Christian biblical scholars, agnostic, atheist biblical scholars, and they will, they will affirm, the vast majority of them, there, there are obviously some that don't, nobody's going to agree on everything, but the vast majority of scholars will say, yes, we know, we, we have an accurate copy of the text. It, it, somebody said cat, and then we ended up with cat. Like, that's just how it, like, that's, that's, our, our copy is very accurate, so we can trust it. And if you ever, ever want to know, well, what is, is there, is there something different in here? Read the footnotes. That's one of the things that I started learning this. I was like, oh, I should read those footnotes. <laughs> They're in there for a reason. So now the question is, did they tell the truth? Okay? And that's a, that's a big one. Um, so how would we know if they actually told the truth? Well, Evidence. Do we have any evidence to corroborate the stories? Um, and that's what I want to spend a little bit more time on. Uh, I love evidence. Like, I'm a, I'm a numbers kind of guy. And so um, we're going to talk about some of the evidence. The first one uh, we're going to talk about is excruciating testimony. There's different, so in the court of law, I got a lot of this stuff from a, a book called Cold Case Christianity, and then another guy named um, Frank Turek who wrote a book called I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist. Um, 
And so testimony in the court of law is evidence, okay? Uh, so the first one is excruciating testimony. Excruciating mean uh, painful, meaning I'm going to stick to my story in the face of persecution and possible death. Okay, if somebody sticks to their story, I mean, you watch all these movies and they're like, we got to get the truth out of them and they torture them. Like, that's excruciating testimony. Do they stick to their story? So the gospel writers, did they stick to their story? Uh, well, there's a, this guy, uh, this is Sean McDowell. I don't know, a lot of folks might have heard of his father, Josh McDowell, wrote the book, Evidence That Demands a Verdict. Josh, or sorry, Sean, this is Sean, is following in his father's footsteps. He has a master's degree in theology, a master's degree in philosophy, as well as a Ph.D. Uh, he teaches apologetics at Biola Talbot School of Theology. He wrote his doctoral dissertation on what happened to the apostles as they made these truth claims, as they wrote the New Testament. Okay? So they wrote all this stuff down, and then people read it, and they didn't like it. So what happened? Well, here's what Sean, in, he's probably the foremost scholar on this topic, and he says this, that the willingness of the apostles to suffer and die for their faith does not prove the resurrection is true, and that's, that's, that's accurate. It doesn't prove that it's true, but here's what it does. It does show the depth of the apostles' convictions. They were not liars. They did not invent the resurrection stories. The apostles proclaimed the risen Jesus to skeptical and antagonistic audiences with full knowledge that they would likely suffer and die for their beliefs. So they wrote this believing it to be true. And they said, we are willing to suffer and die for what we saw and heard. And you can't, it doesn't matter what you do to us, we're going to stick to our guns. Now, again, that doesn't necessarily, I can believe, I can believe I could dunk a basketball, right? But it doesn't make it true. I can actually believe something and it not be true, right? So, how do we know? What else do we have? Well, we have lots of other kinds of evidence. I'm going to talk about four other ones this morning. There's, there's a lot, and I, I wish I had more time. Uh, I only have two hours, right, Jim? <laughs> there's lots of different types of evidence. I, I have a couple that I want to talk about this morning. Early testimony, okay? So early testimony is something to do with when the event happened, how long was the stretch between when the event happened and when it was written down, okay? Lots of ancient documents um, have a very long span of time. The, I, I want to say it's the, the, I'm not even, I think it's Homer, but I can't, I'm not going to, don't, don't quote me on that. But the earliest one that we have, other ancient document outside of Scripture, okay, is about 450-year gap, meaning the event happened, and the first document we have talking about the event is 450 years later, okay? That's the best we got. The Bible is within about 25 to 40 years, meaning the event happened, the resurrection happened, and then the earliest documentation that we, we have of that is about 25 to 40 years away. That's important because that's within the lifetime of people that could say that didn't happen. It didn't happen that way. That's why early testimony is very important. It is, I mean, compared to any other ancient document, I mean, the Bible just blows it away. So that's early testimony. Uh, embarrassing testimony. I love this one. 
Uh, embarrassing testimony is the, when you read the Gospels, the disciples just, they're not bright, right? Like they do lots of dumb stuff and they say lots of stupid things. Look at social media. When you document, are you going to put forth the dumb and stupid and embarrassing things that you say? No, you're not. The fact that they were willing to write the things that they didn't understand, the stupid things or the funny things that they did, the embarrassing things that they did, the fact that they were willing to put that in there lends lends to the fact that it's true. Like, yeah, this was, we didn't get it. We didn't understand, but this is what we said, and this is what we did. Uh, So I like, I mean, there's more to say about embarrassing testimony. I think that's a strong one. I think that's a really strong one. Uh, Expected testimony. Uh, Expected testimony is, there's two kind of parts to this one. Uh, Number one is, uh, have you ever, I guess it was like Sesame Street where there's this, uh, which of these things is not like the other? You know, they're like, something doesn't match, right? And you're like, well, that one sticks out. When you, lo- when you read the, the Gospels, all the four different Gospels, they, they marry really, really well. Um, so people will say, well, well, this person said there's one angel, this person said there's two angels. Like, what is all this stuff? How did the-? When you go into the court of law, when you listen to somebody that is uh, a crime scene investigator, they don't want the different witnesses to say the exact same thing. They want things to be slightly different because people have different perspectives. And again, when you look into this, um, they match up incredibly well. They don't actually contradict each other. They, they come together in this incredible story that, that you finally see all the full details. So that's expected testimony. Another part of expected testimony is all the prophecies in the Old Testament that prophesy about Jesus. There are so many prophecies that are fulfilled in Jesus. So that's expected testimony as well. Um, Boy, I could talk a lot more on all these. I just don't have time. Um, Here's another one, uh, and this is the the one that I'm going to spend a little bit of, uh, just a few minutes on. Um, Extra biblical testimony, because I think that this one, I love um, things that I can see and corroborate. Like, I just, I'm I'm a numbers guy. So uh, and these aren't necessarily numbers, but this is other people that are saying things. So the first one is ancient historical writings, okay? So is there corroboration from what the, the gospel writers wrote? So the gospel writer, people are like, well, they were Christians. They were Jesus' followers. Well, of course they're going to say this stuff is true and whatnot. Well, is there other people that said the same things? That's ancient historical writings, we'll look at that, and then archaeological evidence, and that's like the stuff that you can see and feel and touch and hold. That's the stuff I love. And so we're going to talk about that briefly. So the first one, non-Christian sources. So this is not biblical writers. Um, I would even say that some of these folks that I'm going to mention are anti-Christian. They did not like Christians. They did not want to do anything with Jesus, but they wrote what they saw. And heard, okay? So, they're historians. Josephus, he's probably the most famous. Tacitus, Suetonius, Thallus, Phlegon. There is government officials, okay? They're just, again, writing history down. Pliny the Younger, Emperor Trajan, Emperor Hadrian. I think Emperor Hadrian was one of the, one that just hated Christians. And then some other, two other sources. So there's ten sources right there of ancient non-Christian writings, okay? When you compile 
what these, these 10 people wrote. Here's a couple of the things that we learn about Jesus. He lived during the time of Tiberius Caesar. He lived a virtuous life. He was a wonder worker. He had a brother named James. He was acclaimed to be the Messiah. He was crucified under Pontius Pilate. An eclipse and earthquake occurred when he died. He was crucified on the eve of Passover. His disciples believed he rose from the dead. That sounds like the New Testament to me. You don't need the Bible to know that about Jesus. That's pretty cool. There's outside evidence that corroborates everything that the, that the apostles, that the gospel writers wrote. Um, archaeology, this one is, I mean, th- again, this is just fascinating. Uh, archaeology is one of those things that just simply confirms uh, what is true. It's one of those where you, if, you ex- if the Bible's true, you'd expect that we could find stuff in there, right? Uh, so here's a couple of things that we found. This one right here, Uh, is the Pool of Bethesda, discovered in 1888, uh, John 5, 1 through 9. This is where the the man that was lying there for 38 years was healed. Before 1888, they were like, I don't know, this is just a made-up story. Well, it's not a made-up story. We actually found where um, some of the biblical things. Uh, Pool of Siloam, there's another one that that was discovered in, I think, the 60s. Uh, Here's another one. This one, for a long time, they didn't believe that Pontius Pilate, was a true, like an actual human being. Well, this stone, this is called the Pilate Stone, discovered in 1961, it's written in Latin, proves that Pontius Pilate actually lived. Jim, do you want to read what that says on there for me? I'm just kidding. Got, yeah, you don't have your glasses on. We have archaeological evidence for a lot of people. Coins, um, people like Quirinius, Lysanius, the, the, again, this is expected testimony. It's, if people actually lived, we should find evidence, and here's evidence. This one is, um, this one's cool. This is uh, what's called an ossuary. Um, this is the, the ossuary of Caiaphas, uh, found in 1990. It's, it's a literal bone box. This one is kind of ornate. This is literally the bones of the high priest Caiaphas who took Jesus through the trial. Or so they think there's a lot of really strong evidence that this is the guy that stood in front of Jesus and took him through his trial. That's awesome. Do you know where uh, archaeologists look, what they read to find out where they want to dig? They primarily use five books, whether you're Christian or not. They use Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and Acts. Those are the books that they use to figure out where to dig. There's nothing in archaeology that contradicts anything in Scripture. And they've tried to find it, and it, it all corroborates that the Bible's true. Uh, so the two questions that we asked, are the gospel text accurate? Uh, yes, beyond a reasonable doubt. Is there possibilities? Of course. But beyond a reasonable doubt, we believe that it's true. Did they tell the truth? Uh, their message was corroborated by evidence. The stuff that they said and wrote down, we just saw tons of evidence, and there's more. There's way more. Um, what was their message? That Jesus is God. That this guy Jesus said, I, I am God, and I have, I'm going to show you that I am God by rising from the dead. So the Gospels are true beyond a reasonable doubt. It's a firm foundation. Therefore, if Jesus is God, the Old Testament is true, and the rest of the New Testament is true. So I'm running out of time. I'll just show you how we get there based off of the Gospels. Um, Jesus in the Old Testament, a couple of things that Jesus says. 
don't think I've come to abolish the law. What's the law? It's the, the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, or the prophets. That's the rest of the Old Testament. I did not come to abolish it, but to fulfill it. Jesus also says, then beginning with Moses, Mo, what did Moses write? Well, he wrote the law. And all the prophets, he interpreted for them the, the things concerning himself and all the scriptures. There's tons and tons of other places where Jesus affirms the Old Testament. That's the easy one. But what about the New Testament? Because you can't affirm something that hasn't been actually written yet in, in the concept of time. So how do you get to the New Testament? How do we know that the New Testament is true? Here's something that Jesus says. This is at the Last uh, Supper. He says this. This is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. What the heck is this new covenant? Um, why would Jesus be talking about the new covenant? Well, this is Josh and Sean McDowell. They, again, they were people I talked about earlier. They said this. Christians of the early church believed God was ushering in a new covenant. Why would they think that? Well, Jesus told them, right, in Luke. He told them, hey, I'm giving you a new covenant. If the Old Testament was seen as the written form of the Mosaic covenant, so the Old Testament, okay, then the, er, then the Christians of the early church would sense the need for a written form of the fulfillment of the new covenant that was mentioned in Jeremiah 31, 31 to 34. So what's that say? Look, the days are coming. This is the Lord's declaration when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. The disciples and the apostles knew that that this was a prophecy, that there's going to be a new covenant coming. And then Jesus says that, hey, it's here. And miracles is how that new covenant is confirmed. The rest of the new covenant, again, this, there's so much more to this. But do we have any evidence? What evidence would we have that would say that the rest of the New Testament, Acts through Revelation, would actually be true? Well, it would be confirmed by miracles. Miracles in the Bible, there's about 250 miracles in the Bible, roughly, give or take. If you add up, if you take that, the 1,500 years that the miracles were written down, or that were um, in the Bible, the 1,500 years, and you divide all that stuff out, it averages out to about a miracle every eight years. Well, that's not how it happens, is it? Miracles are centered around a few different times. Moses, the Old Testament, the prophets, Elijah and Elisha, the rest of the Old Testament, Jesus, which is the Gospels, and then in Acts. And the, in Acts is where we hear about the, the apostles, and they're the ones that wrote the vast majority of the New Testament. So, again, there's more, way more to that, but that's why miracles are so important. And that's how we can stand on the firm foundation of the rest of the New Testament. So is the Bible true? Um, I believe that the Bible... Uh, is true. You know, when uh, John the Baptist, and this is, I'm, I'm almost done, um, John the Baptist was in prison and he was questioning, right? He said, well, is, is this true? Like, hey, go send his disciples to, to, to Jesus' disciples and said, what is, are you the one that's to come or is there another one? Jesus said, go and report to John what you hear and what you see. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, those with leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, and the dead are raised, and the poor are told the good news, and blessed is the one who isn't offended by me. Jesus pointed to the evidence. Uh, so, when we look at the evidence, um, I think that it's overwhelming. I think that it actually takes more faith 
to not believe that the Bible's true than to actually believe that it's true. And when I talk about faith, it's not a blind faith, it's, it's trust. Biblical faith is saying, I trust this to be true. Um, so, I'm going to ask you the question, I'll end with this. Um, but what about you, Jesus asked, who do you say that I am? There's a mountain of evidence. There, there's a literal mountain of evidence. When you take all the New Testament, uh, all the different languages, and all the manuscripts, Greek, all that stuff, and you pile it, it's over a mile high. That's like climbing Mount Marcy. It's, there's literally a mountain of evidence. So what about you? Who do you say that I am? Thanks so much. Let me tell you, say a quick prayer. Father God, thank you for the evidence. Thank you that you love us so much that you don't leave us without anything to see or feel or hear. Lord, we love you. We are so thankful that you rose from the dead to prove that you are God and that you are someone that, um, that is worthy of our trust. Lord, I pray that um, we would be able to trust you and that we would be able to release ourselves to trust in your word in a deeper way than we ever have. So Lord, again, thank you for your cross and for the way that you love us. In your name we pray, amen.